International inspectors are concerned about the fighting near the Russian-occupied nuclear power plant in Ukraine. The physical integrity of the facility has been violated not once, but several times. And the biggest issue is the possibility of loss of electricity the plant needs to run safely. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a federal judge has granted former President Trump's request for a third-party review of materials seized from Mar-a-Lago that temporarily stops prosecutors from using them in their investigation. Traffic fatalities in the U.S. are the highest they've been in 20 years, despite steady improvements in auto safety and declines in drunk driving. And inflation remains a major concern for Americans, but the loss of a job, not so much. A lot of people are still quitting their jobs way more than before the pandemic. And that's a sign that workers are confident they can find other work. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. President Biden is due to touch down in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania this hour after starting his day in Wisconsin, another swing state in November's midterm elections. NPR's Claudia Grisales is traveling with the president and reports on his remarks in Milwaukee. President Biden was received by a large crowd of workers, many wearing labor union shirts as he touted the American worker. Biden celebrated the role of unions in the economy in critical professions, including automakers and first responders. Today, support for unions in this country is higher than it's been in nearly 60 years. Think about this. You guys know the numbers. Unions are more, have more support today in America and public opinion than any time in 60 years. The speech was focused on the theme of, quote, celebrating Labor Day and the dignity of American workers. He also highlighted legislative gains to address drug prices and corporate taxes. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A federal judge in Florida is authorizing a special master to review the papers the FBI seized from former President Donald Trump last month. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports the order could halt the ongoing criminal investigation. The judge, a Trump appointee, cited the need to ensure the appearance of fairness and integrity in the process. Over objections from the Justice Department, she's directing the special master to look for personal items and materials that could be subject to attorney-client or executive privilege. The judge also temporarily enjoined prosecutors from using those documents for their ongoing investigation into obstruction and mishandling of government secrets. She says the special master will not impede a review of national security risks posed by having sensitive papers at Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. The Justice Department has signaled it may appeal the ruling. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. In Saskatchewan and across the other central Canadian provinces of Manitoba and Alberta, residents are on alert. One day after two suspects killed 10 people and wounded 18 in knife attacks, then fled. It happened in and around an indigenous community, the James Smith Cree Nation. Evan Bray is the Regina police chief. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of anxiety in our province and in our communities this morning and all day yesterday. And uh, really, I think an important step for families and communities working through this will be to bring these two safely into custody. Though at large, both suspects have been charged with murder. OPEC is announcing plans to cut back oil production by about 100,000 barrels a day starting next month. Prices have fallen by about a quarter since June. The move reverses a modest increase agreed to after Biden visited Saudi Arabia this summer and urged OPEC to pump in more oil to help bring down prices. 
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A flash flood warning is in effect for parts of Bristol County near the Rhode Island border until 545 today. There are heavy downpours to the north and west of Fall River that have raised the risk of flooded streets and creeks. Many roadways are flooded in and around Providence. Be careful around that area. A flood watch is in effect through tomorrow afternoon for Massachusetts, except for the Berkshires, Cape Cod, and the islands. Traffic is slow in several places as Labor Day getaways come to an end. Coming off Cape Cod, there's a seven-mile backup approaching the Sagamore Bridge. No delay, though, at the Bourne Bridge. On 95 southbound, traffic is slow for 30 miles from York, Maine, to Hampton, New Hampshire. Mass Turnpike eastbound is slow from Sturbridge to Charlton. Vice President Kamala Harris was in Boston today to meet local union leaders at an annual Labor Day breakfast. Harris reiterated the Biden administration's commitment to labor. She also denounced Republican leaders, saying their policies hurt workers. WBR's Yasmeen Amr has more. Local union leaders called the Biden administration one of the most pro-union in the country's history. Harris touted the administration's 2021 infrastructure bill, saying it creates more jobs for workers. She also accused GOP leaders of trying to reverse workers' rights. But instead of standing with working people to lower the price of health care, education, child care, these extremist so-called leaders prioritize breaks for big corporations and the wealthiest 1%. According to the National Labor Relations Board, petitions for union membership in the U.S. were up almost 60% in the first half of this fiscal year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer. The countdown is on to tomorrow's primary elections in Massachusetts. Republican candidates for governor are spending the day speaking with voters. Jeff Deal will host a telephone rally featuring former President Donald Trump tonight. Chris Doty participated in a Labor Day parade in Marlboro and will spend the evening calling registered voters. On the Democratic side, Attorney General Maura Healey attended a Labor Day breakfast in Boston and rallied campaign supporters in Lowell. She is running unopposed for the party's nomination. More showers continuing tonight, down around 60 for a low. Tomorrow, showers again through the day in the mid-60s tops. We should see some sunshine on Wednesday. A few clouds, maybe a shower, moving up to about 70 degrees. Red Sox are down in Florida to take on Tampa Bay. The game starts in just about four minutes. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. And LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. It's a court victory for former President Donald Trump. Today, a federal judge in Florida granted his request for a special master to review documents the FBI seized from Trump's Florida estate. That judge is also putting a temporary halt on the Justice Department's ability to use those papers in its criminal probe. NPR Justice correspondent Kerry Johnson is following every turn of this story. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. Much like you and me, this judge is working on Labor Day. What are the takeaways from her ruling? 
Judge Eileen Cannon, who was appointed to the bench by former President Trump, has handed the former president a big, if temporary, win. She says an independent arbiter or a special master should review the 11,000 pages of papers the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago last month. The judge talked about the need to ensure the appearance of fairness and integrity in this process under the extraordinary circumstance of the Justice Department investigating a former president. She says the special master is going to look through these papers to see if there are any material related to attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. The judge says federal prosecutors investigating obstruction and mishandling of government secrets will be barred at least temporarily from using these papers in that part of the criminal probe. But since the papers were taken, we've learned a lot about them. Tell us what's known. Yeah, the FBI took about 27 boxes from the resort during its search early last month. We now know that included at least 100 classified documents, including some marked at the highest level of classification. The FBI also found several dozen folders marked classified, but those folders were empty. And mingled in with these papers were personal items like clothing and gifts. Investigators also found former President Trump's passports in a desk drawer with some secret papers. Now, the former president told people at a rally over the weekend the FBI search was an abuse of power. But remember, it was approved by a federal magistrate judge who found probable cause that a crime had been committed here. Now, the Justice Department had argued that there was no need for a special master. They said it would delay the investigation. What's their reaction today from this ruling? The Justice Department is reviewing the decision and will consider appropriate next steps, which may include an appeal. Last week, prosecutors suggested they were going to use these papers to interview more witnesses and conduct more activity before the grand jury. The judge has put a halt to that, at least for now. But the judge says that won't apply to the national security review that's being done by the intelligence community, which is looking at whether anyone else gained access to the access to these sensitive papers. Any idea how quickly the special master might get to work? A few things need to happen next. First, the judge says both sides need to get together and come up with a list of people who have the credentials to serve as a special master, get that to her by Friday. It's not clear how long any independent arbiter would take to go over all these papers, but the judge said when the DOJ looked at them, it took about three weeks. The investigation still seems to be in early stages. There's no sense that former President Trump or anyone else will be charged with wrongdoing anytime soon, if at all. But some of the statements prosecutors made in court filings suggest other people close to Trump will be interviewed eventually. And so will the Trump lawyers who told the Justice Department they conducted a diligent search for classified material in June before the FBI found even more secrets at Mar-a-Lago. That's NPR's Kerry Johnson. Thanks for your reporting. My pleasure. In Ukraine, there were renewed problems at the troubled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant today. The plant lost its last remaining connection to Ukraine's electricity grid after intensive shelling, according to the company that runs the plant. That news comes just a few days after the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency left the site. NPR's Jeff Brumfield is here to discuss the latest. Jeff, what happened at the plant? Well, normally this nuclear plant has four different connections to the electricity grid, and they were down to one, and then that one was lost due to shelling earlier this month around the plant. So it turns out there was one more backup option, a smaller line that ran through a nearby thermal power plant, 
And today we learned that it was also disconnected. Now, the state-run utility that runs the nuclear plant blames Russia for the shelling. The International Atomic Energy Agency said the disconnection came due to a fire, and they expected the line would be reconnected soon. But for now, the plant is uh, not connected to the grid. Losing four of four connections to the electricity grid sounds bad. Why specifically uh, does this matter? Well, nuclear plants make a lot of electricity, but they also require electricity from the grid to operate safely. And specifically, these plants need to keep water pumping through their nuclear cores. So that keeps the cores cool and prevents them from melting down. Now, the IAEA says that one of the reactors at the site is actually still supplying power to the cooling systems. But yeah, this is a precarious way to run a nuclear plant. On Friday, the head of the IAEA, Rafael Grossi, returned from a visit. He said that it was clear that Zaporizhia's physical integrity had been violated by shelling and other attacks, and he was very worried about it. Any more information on why these lines keep getting hit? Is it deliberate or accidental? Well, obviously, power lines are going to be affected by things like artillery shells. They're very vulnerable. Uh, but on Friday, Grossi said he thought the targeting of these lines was also deliberate. It is clear that those who have these military aims know very well that the way to cripple or to do more damage is to you know, hit where it hurts so the plant becomes very, very problematic. And it does seem like these lines are going down one after another. So the last of the big four main lines was knocked out right after Grossi left. And then this backup line was knocked out today, the same day some more of IAEA's inspectors left the facility. Why would these lines be a target? You know, the reactors themselves are really heavily shielded and tough to damage. And there'd be a huge international outcry if a military was seen deliberately shooting at them. But the power lines are soft targets. They're farther away. And Grossi said that, you know, makes them a tempting target for someone who's trying to make things difficult at the plant. Now, why would someone do that? It's really anyone's guess. Russia has held the plant since March, has been keeping military vehicles and personnel near the reactors. Ukraine is mounting an offensive in the south. But there's just plenty of shelling by both Russia and Ukraine in this area at the moment, so there's no way to tell. I'm sure experts are gaming out potential scenarios. What are their concerns about what might happen next? Well, you know, if the site does lose cooling, then there could obviously be a meltdown. And if that happened, it would be in a war zone. We've never seen anything like that. There would be no easy way to get international help to the plant. And if that's not scary enough, Zaporizhia sits in the middle of some of Ukraine's most fertile farmland. So there's this real risk that any any radioactivity released would be potentially economically devastating as well. That's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ari. Back to the U.S. now. If you are headed home after this long holiday weekend, drive carefully. U.S. roads are more dangerous than they have been in a generation. Traffic fatalities are at a 20-year high despite the fact that cars are safer than they've ever been. Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports. Hundreds of people turned out in Grandview, Missouri last week for the funeral of Charles Crenier, devoted father of 10. I invite you to stand and sing with us again. Crenier was out for an early morning bike ride when a hit-and-run driver slammed into him from behind. He was pronounced dead at the scene, just 43 years old, a beloved husband, teacher, and coach, says his brother Eric Crenier. He was the best brother ever. And I'll miss you, Charlie. 
And this kind of thing happens over and over again, every single day, all over the country. Mark Chung with the National Safety Council says car wrecks killed almost 46,000 Americans last year. That's like a regional jet crashing every day. Regional jet carrying 125 people crashing every single day of last year. The 10% jump in deaths last year was the worst increase on record, and the fatality rate is still climbing. And this is a massive reversal. The grim spike in deaths follows a long, persistent decline since the 1970s, driven by huge advances in vehicle safety features, road design, and seatbelt compliance. It's devastating. Kathy Chase, president of Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety, says the pandemic seemed to set it off. Our roadways were turned into racetracks, and excessive speed really went up, up through the roof, and uh, more people were driving while impaired. Chase says that motorists messed up on drugs and alcohol or distracted by their cell phones and not wearing seatbelts are driving the sharp rise in traffic deaths. That squares with the careless, aggressive driving that Police Sergeant Corey Carlisle sees here in downtown Kansas City. Carlisle says most deadly crashes used to happen on major highways. Now he says they're common on these city streets. We're stopping people going 120. I mean, that's if they stop. So the new trend is high speeds, not stopping for the police. The police here, like many places, are short-staffed. They're making fewer stops, and for safety's sake, they won't get into a high-speed chase just for a traffic violation. But Carlos says Kansas City cops are making close to triple the number of impaired driving arrests that they were before the pandemic. And though newer cars are safer for passengers, they're often bigger, faster, and heavier than they used to be, making them more lethal for everyone else. And if you're driving a 3,000-pound vehicle at 50 to 100 miles an hour, you're weaponizing that car, and you're the one pulling the trigger. It's the same thing. And this is primarily an American problem. Mark Chung at the National Safety Council says no other developed countries are seeing a surge in traffic fatalities. But Chung says the U.S. may be on the verge of turning things around. Just last week, a new federal regulation kicked in requiring all new cars to have automatic braking systems that fire when the car is about to hit something. The technology is to assist the driver in recognizing that obstacle. And if you're not fast enough to apply the brakes, it will do that for you. That's going to save lives. In fact, a system like that could have spared Charles Crenier, the Kansas City area father of 10, killed when he was hit from behind by an inattentive driver. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. U.S. markets are closed for the Labor Day holiday today. City of Boston is seeking nominations for a new program to support so-called legacy businesses. WBUR's John Bender reports companies that have operated in the same location for at least 10 years qualify. The initiative is aimed at keeping culturally significant shops, restaurants, and other companies in Boston neighborhoods. The city's small business director, Alicia Porcena, says the program will promote tourism and protect businesses from encroaching development. So how are we supporting businesses so they're not displaced, especially ones that have been in the community for years? And I think this program wants to highlight these businesses 
And we really believe that this program can help turn our neighborhoods into destinations. 25 selected businesses will receive free legal consulting and access to a $1 million fund for help with things like rent and operations costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, as the autumn months inch closer, we look back at the hottest songs of the summer. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Red Sox hit the road just in time for the rain to arrive. This afternoon, they're down in St. Petersburg to start up a three-game series with the Rays. Michael Locke is a starting pitcher. He's got a record of 10-1. and Luis Patino does the honors for Tampa Bay. Sox took an early lead. It's now one to nothing. Sox in the first inning. And in the forecast, kind of soupy for the holiday. More showers overnight tonight, dipping just to about 60. Tomorrow may not make it out of the 60s as clouds and showers rule another day. And then around midweek, we should make it to about 70 with a blend of sunshine and clouds Wednesday, the off chance of a shower. This is WBUR 66 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Well, it's Labor Day. It's the last day of summer in many people's eyes, including mine. And back when this season started, we asked NPR's Stephen Thompson to predict which songs would be everywhere this summer. Well, some of those predictions probably sound pretty familiar by now. There's Kate Bush. Running Up That Hill, the 1980s song revived by the TV show Stranger Things. Lizzo's About Damn Time. That one is pretty self-explanatory. And of course there is Beyonce. She had a whole album drop this summer. Stephen Thompson is back now to chat about just how right his predictions were. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Juana. All right, we are journalists. We are in the business of facts. <laughs> so if you can fact check yourself, what happened in music this summer? Well, I think I mostly got it pretty right. I mean, I certainly picked three songs that were massive hits in the summer of 2022, but it's important to note that Song of the Summer is a marathon, not a sprint. These things didn't happen overnight. Uh, They had weeks or even months, or in the case of Kate Bush, years of rollout before they kind of took off and became kind of defining songs of this summer. So I got them right, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty easy lift. Okay, so I, I gotta ask you here, was there a clear winner? Who came out on top to you? 
Well, I think, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, and there are different metrics at work here. We could talk about what was streamed the most on Spotify. We could talk about what topped the billboard charts. We could talk in sort of a more nebulous way about what kind of dominated the cultural conversation. And I don't think you can necessarily slot the same song into all those spots. The most streamed song on Spotify in the summer of 2022 was Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush from 1985. Thus showing that a song can have the longest imaginable tale and still you have enormous cultural resonance years and years, decades later. Um, the most streamed song globally was As It Was by Harry Styles. That's kind of the song that we talked about a little bit earlier this summer, but I think I certainly underestimated the staying power of that song. That song is still number one on the Billboard charts. So any other artists that come to mind who also had strong showings this summer that maybe surprised you? Well, I, I wasn't necessarily expecting Jack Harlow's song First Class to, to kind of climb as high on the charts as it did and stick around as long as it did. That song had an enormous amount of staying power, in part due to radio airplay. They say you a superstar now, damn, I guess I am. You might be the man, well, that's unless I am. Okay, I'll confess I am. So Jack Harlow is certainly an example of somebody who really broke through in 2022 and had a very, very big summer. I think it's definitely worth mentioning Bad Bunny. Bad Bunny put out an album called Un Verano Sin Ti back in May, and its songs were just all over the streaming charts all summer long. If the metric you're using is streaming, he was enormous. If the metric you're using is the number of times I heard it playing out of car windows, it also qualifies. He had a massive, massive, massive summer. Okay, so when we talk about some of the names we started out with, Beyonce, she's been around for nearly 25 years. Kate Bush's song, Running Up That Hill, came out before I was born. But were there any <laughs> newcomers that sort of came out of nowhere this summer? I don't think this summer was necessarily a big one for completely left field artists who came entirely out of nowhere. I think you're starting to see some trickle up though. I think this fall, you're gonna hear a lot more of Blackpink. Uh, Blackpink is a, a, a K-pop girl group. just played the VMAs. They've got a song called Pink Venom that's kind of climbing the charts. We didn't necessarily have that one big K-pop smash hit that defined the summer the way we have from BTS in the last couple years. And I think Blackpink, a band that a lot of people have been talking about as a next big thing for the last few years, they seem to finally be crossing over to the U.S. in ways that began this summer. 
When I think back about our conversation at the start of the summer, we also talked about how house music was reemerging, both in Beyonce's songs and Drake's new album. Were there any other big artists that we saw dabbling in house, or was that kind of a one or two off? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I think that particular trend in pop music is still kind of revealing itself. You know, the saying, you know, two's a coincidence, three's a trend, or whatever. I mean, you had Beyonce and Drake really doing that. I can't help it, I'm so into you. And certainly other artists have, have broken through in dance music, but I'm not sure that's necessarily taken over the sound of mainstream pop music the way it seemed like maybe it might for a minute there. Now, I know summer is sadly coming to an end, but we are headed into what I think is the best season of the year, fall. And I don't know if there's like a song of the fall, but Stephen, what are you excited about over the next couple of months? What kind of artists are going to be bringing you into autumn? I mentioned Blackpink. That feels like it's about to become a really, really, really massive thing in terms of topping charts. There's a new album from Carly Rae Jepsen coming out in October. She is an enormously reliable pop hit maker. There's a new Taylor Swift coming out in October. She is certainly likely to dominate the cultural conversation really between now and then as she as she so often does. Uh, we're gonna see more of these kind of BTS uh, solo projects rolling out, that any of which have the potential to kind of cross over in a big way. Uh, but one thing that's worth keeping in mind is songs really aren't just songs of the summer. Uh, pop singles have more staying power than just about any piece of pop culture right now. Movies stay in theater for just a few weeks. Even Top Gun Maverick only stayed in theaters for a few months, right? But sometimes these pop songs will last and stay on the charts for months and months and months or even years. I mean, Glass Animals had the song of the summer with heat waves a while back. Sometimes all I think about is you Late nights in the middle of June Heat waves been faking me and that thing still hasn't gone away. So uh, some of the songs of the fall are going to be the same as the songs of, of this summer because songs take so long to kind of slip out of the public's imagination. All right, Stephen Thompson from NPR Music, thanks for helping us fill out our playlist this year. Thank you, Anna. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. And Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. President Biden touted American workers in a Labor Day address in Milwaukee, Wisconsin today. Speaking to a large crowd of workers, he championed the role of unions in the economy and in critical professions and vowed ongoing support. I promise to be the most pro-union president in American history. California Governor Gavin Newsom has marked Labor Day by signing a new law to create a fast food council that would set wages, safety standards, and other protections for more than a half million fast food workers. The new council will be the first in the nation, and its regulations will apply to chain restaurants with more than 100 outlets across the state. Restaurant owners oppose the measure, saying it'll drive up prices. Pakistani authorities say more than 1,300 people are dead after weeks of unprecedented flooding. As emergency aid arrives, NPR's Dia Hadid reports, officials and aid workers say they're worried about the long term. Heavy monsoon rain since mid-June flooded about a third of the country. Beyond the death toll, authorities face multiple calamities. More than a million homes were damaged or destroyed. More than 600,000 people are now in shelters. Most have lost their livelihoods and will need assistance for at least the next few months. The rains washed away infrastructure built over several decades, including more than 3,000 miles of road. About 2 million acres of cropland were underwater. Some agricultural experts told local media they aren't sure if flooded lands will be ready for the next spring planting season or if farmers will be able to afford to buy seeds to sow their fields. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's a slow ride home from Labor Day getaways. There's a 29-mile backup on 95 South from York, Maine to Hampton, New Hampshire. The Mass Turnpike eastbound is slow from Sturbridge to Charlton. There's a seven-mile backup at the Sagamore Bridge for drivers leaving Cape Cod. No delay, though, at the Bourne Bridge at Logan Airport. Inbound flights are delayed an average of 50 minutes because of the low clouds here in the Boston area. In other news this afternoon, Sorry about that. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Boston to celebrate the labor movement. Today, she spoke at the annual Labor Day breakfast in Boston held by union leaders. She praised unions for their fight for higher wages. City of Boston is taking steps to advance issues concerning workers on this Labor Day. Mayor Michelle Wu announced she is creating what's called a cabinet for worker empowerment. Wu told labor leaders this morning the new office will boost job training, vocational education, and construction site safety. In the last five months alone, we've seen a fatality, serious injuries, a near accident, and multiple fires. This is unacceptable at our work sites in Boston. Mayor Wu says the office will bring together functions that are now spread across different city departments. New research from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard details some of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on people in nursing homes. WBR's Jonathan Kane has more. The research found nursing home residents lost more weight and were more likely to have depressive symptoms during 2020 than in pre-pandemic years. That was the case even in facilities where there were no COVID outbreaks. Study co-author Michael Barnett says bans on visitors and communal activities likely contributed. I think we have pretty clear evidence that the policies and changes that happened in 2020 for nursing homes might have actually had a pretty big spillover effect in people who didn't have COVID. 
Barnett says future policymakers should consider the consequences of infection prevention measures against the magnitude of the public health threat. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays are now tied at one in the second inning in St. Petersburg. And the forecast, more showers continuing tonight, down around 60 for a low. Tomorrow, showers again through the day. Temperatures in the mid-60s, tops, some sunshine finally on Wednesday. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Israel's army, the IDF, released a statement today saying there is a high possibility that one of their own fired the shot that killed Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh in May. She was a longtime Al Jazeera correspondent covering clashes between Israel and Palestinian gunmen near the city of Jenin when she was killed. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been covering the story. Hey, Daniel. Hi, Ari. How has this high-profile case unfolded up to now? It's been a months-long saga, Ari, all the way back since when Shirin Abu Akleh was killed in May. The case has gotten a lot of attention. Shirin Abu Akleh was a veteran reporter for Al Jazeera, and she had American citizenship, and the U.S. has been pressing for answers. She was killed on a morning of an Israeli military operation on Palestinian suspects. She was there covering it. Israeli soldiers were facing scores of bullets from Palestinian gunmen, and vice versa. And there has been this this long saga over who was responsible for her killing, which was caught on tape and seen throughout the world. Israel said it could have been our soldier or it could have been a Palestinian gunman. We have to investigate. But media, CNN, The Washington Post, The New York Times, all had experts analyze the video and tracked where the soldiers and the gunmen were known to be and determined that Israeli soldiers were likely responsible for the bullet. But Israel said they were still investigating. So the U.S. got involved and oversaw a forensic investigation of the bullet. It was inconclusive. The the bullet was too damaged to determine which gun had fired it. But the State Department said it was likely Israel responsible, and the U.S. continued to call for accountability. So finally now, Israel has come out with its final conclusions of its own investigation. And that conclusion is that there is a high possibility, in the words of the report, that an Israeli soldier fired the fatal shot? That's right. But there are still many unanswered questions in these conclusions. Quote, high possibility, but the military says it found nothing wrong in its soldiers' actions, found no no reason to open a criminal investigation, no reason to revisit the standard operating procedure. Reporters spoke with a senior military official earlier today who said, The soldier who fired the shot was in a vehicle with minimal visibility. He thought he was firing at, quote, a terrorist on a day of uh, where soldiers were under very heavy gunfire. But when you look at the video footage, Ari, it shows minutes leading up to the the killing of Shirin Abu Akleh where there were no gunshots at the scene. So we have still unanswered questions about why the soldier fired that shot. How has Shirin Abu Akleh's family responded to this? They say Israel is trying to, quote, avoid responsibility. They've called for 
the U.S. to step up and to continue to demand accountability, but they're also asking for an international criminal court investigation. And Israel's leading human rights group, B'Tselem, also slammed the Israeli army's conclusions and said there was enormous public international pressure like the U.S. to bring Israel to this point, to say it was a high probability that one of its soldiers shot the fatal bullet But that this is an ongoing campaign. Israel continues nightly incursions. And in the last couple of months, more than 80 Palestinians, both gunmen and uninvolved civilians, have been killed. Is this the final word on this investigation? That is probably going to be up to the U.S. The U.S. has been the main driver in demanding answers and accountability from Israel. We'll have to see whether the U.S. asks Israel to change its standard operating procedure or announce any kind of measures it's going to take to change the way that its soldiers operate in the field where journalists are there covering. So far, we haven't heard anything from Israel that they are considering changing any of their soldiers' procedures. It's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you. You're welcome. This Labor Day, we're taking a moment to check in on workers. The pandemic had a whiplash effect on the labor market. Record layoffs in 2020 were followed by record job openings that have continued for more than a year. NPR's Andrea Shu has been tracking what that's meant for workers. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Ari. Okay, for months we have heard you say workers are in the driver's seat. Now we're fighting inflation. The economy seems to be in trouble. Are workers still in the driver's seat? Well, the short answer is yes, but of course, not all workers are in the same boat. We have seen some layoffs in some industries like the tech sector and home buying. But Ari, the latest data shows solid job growth. Layoffs are low. Job openings continued to climb over the summer, and a lot of people are still quitting their jobs way more than before the pandemic. And that's a sign that workers are confident that they can find other work. So in terms of employment, workers are still in a good place, but whether they're happy or not, that's another question. Okay, people are still quitting their jobs, so the great resignation is ongoing. The pandemic epiphanies that people had been having, realizing Mm -hmm. that they didn't like what they were doing and making a big change, that's still going on? Yeah, we're still seeing a lot of churn, especially in low-wage work like restaurants and hotels. I mean, how many times have you gone somewhere and found there was only one person working? I mean, a lot of employers are still having problems hiring. But this year, we've also seen a lot of workers say, I don't want to leave my job, but I want things to change. And that's driven a surge in union organizing this year at places like Starbucks and Amazon, Trader Joe's. The workers are asking for more money, but also for things that would improve their safety and their well-being being. These were issues that were front and center in the pandemic. And we're also seeing workers who are unionized go on strike. These are thousands of healthcare workers, for example. They're speaking up now because they're burned out and fed up, but also they know they're in high demand. You're giving a lot of examples of people who have to be on site. What about remote work and the push by bosses to get people back into the office? How is that tug of war going? Well, the estimates are all over the place for who's gone back. Castle Systems, which tracks office card swipes, has found that in D.C., Philly, New York, San Francisco, only 30-some percent of workers are going to the office. And where it's been mandated, it's been controversial. Take Apple. Um, Starting this week, their employees are supposed to be in the office three days a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and one other day set by their teams. That's according to some internal memos. They can work remotely the two other days, but a lot of workers feel this isn't enough. And this spring, some Apple employees published an open letter saying, you know, stop treating us like kids. Let us decide for ourselves. But however this plays out in workplaces, one thing that's clear is that 
this dramatic shift to hybrid and remote work is permanent for a lot of people. And I think we're just starting to get a sense of what that means beyond the day-to-day -day for things like promotions or younger workers who are just starting out or for workplace culture. Speaking of workplace culture, let's talk about quiet quitting, which I think is a terrible phrase to describe <laughs> what it is. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get a TikTok for a moment. Okay. You're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. Doing what you're paid to do and not sacrificing your well-being in order to do more. Leaving work on time, not checking your emails outside of work hours and not subscribing to hustle culture, which isn't that what a job should be already? Ari, I have been inundated <laughs> with emails about this. CEO saying, this is great. Employees should set boundaries. Others, including Ariana Huffington, who are dismayed by this whole idea. She says quiet quitting is basically just quitting on life. Why not find a job that inspires you and brings you joy? So I see this as another byproduct of the pandemic, how we work, when we work, how much we work. It's all up for debate now, and that in itself is a pretty big change. NPR's Andrea Shu working from home while I'm here in the studio. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In recent years, dozens of smaller cities and towns across the U.S. have seen their local hospitals shuttered. And once a rural hospital closes, it's usually gone for good, which is why a hospital reopening in Brownsville, Tennessee, is such a big deal. Here's Blake Farmer of member station WPLN. The sun is rising over the Haywood County Community Hospital, and Michael Banks stands out front in a seersucker suit, welcoming back employees in the dim light. No backing out now. All right, go get your stuff set up. Let's get ready to rock and roll. Banks is a local attorney who was chair of the hospital board. Now he's CEO. So I remember getting called into that office right there by the CEO at the time and him telling me that they were closing, and that was in 2014. This hospital was part of a wave of closures that hit states that have refused to expand Medicaid to cover the working poor. And all 16 rural hospitals closed in Tennessee more than anywhere but Texas. This building had sat here for six or seven years with no air circulation, no water in the lines, everything just deteriorates. Barry Dunnigan is back as head of maintenance after eight years. The mothballed hospital was handed to the local government, and Dunnigan assumed it would be bulldozed. It takes a world of work to ever get it back. But it's really happening. They're down to installing the door stops for the first phase of renovations. A new company out of Florida called Braden Health acquired this and three other hospitals between Nashville and Memphis. It's one of a handful of companies trying to resuscitate closed rural hospitals now that communities are practically giving them away. But it takes millions of dollars to get them going even if everything goes right. Braden Health's Terry Stewart says the Haywood Hospital was supposed to open in January. And we start seeing some spots of mold come back up. So we gutted the building out again. That mold severely complicated Stewart's pet project, preserving hundreds of ceramic tiles that local kindergartners painted and put on the walls in the late 1990s. Saving them has become a sort of symbol of the new owner's commitment to the community. If they just had one crack, I glued them back together and put them back on the wall. Just so I could say I saved everything I could possibly say. 
manager Taisha Allen, who grew up here, is still looking for hers. I'm gonna find it. I got plenty of time to find it. So yeah. When I came in here the first time, I was like, oh my God, they still have their imprints. Allen moved to Illinois after the hospital closed, but the reopening reeled her home to Tennessee. She's back managing the supply room where she's still getting the bedpans and bandages in order. Uh, how about we just put it right there? Allen says she's trying to bring other co-workers back too. Several nurses are driving an hour or more to work at other hospitals. Then there are the patients who've gotten used to driving to the cities for care, but not her mom who's ready for an excuse to be admitted. My mom said, she was like, well, I'm just gonna come next week. I'm like, what's gonna be wrong with you next week to just come to, you know, the doctor's out, everybody's excited. The excitement is real, but it will take time to change habits and rebuild trust. It took until the afternoon for the first patient to show up, but Amy Spots, who came in with abdominal pain, left a satisfied customer. My husband drove by this morning and saw the sign out that said it was open, and I called him earlier and I said I need to go somewhere. She and her husband didn't realize they'd be making history the first patients in Tennessee's first rural hospital to successfully reopen. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Brownsville, Tennessee. And that story was produced in partnership with Nashville Public Radio and Kaiser Health News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Still to come on WBUR's All Things Considered, how the Yonkers Police Department has gone about better reflecting the demographics of the community it serves. That story is just ahead. Red Sox are fresh off their clean sweep of the Texas Rangers as they visit the Tampa Bay Rays this afternoon. It's now the third inning in St. Petersburg. It is still tied at 1-1. This is the first stop on the Sox six-game road trip. Baltimore comes next. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund and its Untold Stories event, September 22nd at the Royal Sinesta Hotel in Cambridge. Come, listen, and be inspired by personal stories of struggle and perseverance, as told by local nonprofit leaders. More at thelennyzakemfund.org slash events. Keep an eye out for some ponding on the roads this afternoon. A flood watch remains in effect through tomorrow afternoon at 5 o'clock. Overnight tonight, more showers dipping just a bit to about 60. Tomorrow may not make it out of the 60s as clouds and showers rule the day. Around midweek, we should make it to 70 with a blend of clouds and sunshine Wednesday, the off chance of a shower. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet services over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, with locations in Boston, Milford, and the South Shore, and now Foxborough. Learn more at youhaveus.org. All right, I'm just going to roll the tape here. Let's hit it. It's weird having chickens stare at you, but if you get used to it, it's not much different. I'm Kai Rizdal, and I say I would not ever get used to chickens staring at me, but... Some people do, I guess. Farm vacations next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. For years now, communities across the country have been saying their police departments should look more like the cities they serve. 
That includes Yonkers, New York, where police are specifically looking to recruit officers of color. The team at NPR's Embedded podcast spent a year there reporting on the effort. Dan Germa brings us this story. It's May 2022, and about a dozen potential police recruits are on a track at a high school field in Yonkers. Kind of like a track meet for adults. <laughs> Family and friends have come to watch. It's cold and wet from the rain the night before. This track, inside lane, six laps, right, from start to finish. Start a timekeeper lays out the rules for the group. The goal is to do a mile and a half in a time determined by your age and gender. Ready, begin. Go, One of the runners sprinting down the track is Stephen Burton. He's 28 years old, and he's a little surprised to find himself here. Honestly, like, I didn't think I would ever even want to be a police officer. That's until one day, out of the blue. I just got a phone call from a police officer saying, hey, you you registered for this beat of change. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Burton had never heard of a program called Be the Change, but he didn't hang up. The officer explained that the Yonkers Police Department is trying to hire more officers of color. They even put out an ad. The Yonkers Police is hiring. And we want you to take the test. We are looking for a diverse group of men and women to help keep Yonkers moving forward. The department promised to help people through the application process, which started with a written exam and then a physical test if you scored high enough. The ad ended with this call to action. Be a hero. Be a hero. Be a hero. Be a hero. Be the change. I didn't really see, like, a lot of minority cops in this uh, department. And that's one of the things that I really would like to see. Burton grew up next door to Yonkers in the Bronx and had a lot of run-ins with the cops, mostly white ones. Whenever I got pulled over or (laughs) got stopped by police officers, the first thing they asked me is, where are you going? Or, whose car is this? It's always an aggressive tone with police officers. Burton didn't really want anything to do with the police. But after that call with the Yonkers cop, he started thinking about how if he really wanted to be the change, he should do something about it. The driving factor behind it all is just wanting to see change in the, in the system because it starts with police officers. So Burton applied and took the exam. And after he passed, he was invited to an information meeting put on by a black police organization in Yonkers called The Guardians. The group's president began the meeting. My name is Lieutenant Charles Walker. Everyone you see here tonight is an officer, and some are retired officers. In all, 12 current officers and two retired officers are there. You know, all of them lined up at the front of the room. It looked like the Avengers. (laughs) This is Danielle Santos, another black police candidate. I've never seen so many black cops in Yonkers, ever. That's why the Guardians are holding this meeting to show how many black officers there actually are in Yonkers, but also why they need even more. It's not enough of us on this job. Our intent is to get all of us on this job. It was even more apparent when Walker joined the Yonkers Police Department 19 years ago. I started looking at the history of the department, uh, how many applicants were we getting, how many were actually black, um, and just seeing the numbers, and they were dismal. (laughs) That's when he decided to devote himself to getting more black officers on the force. If you speak to any black officer, um, there are plenty of times where you go to a scene, whether it be a traffic stop uh, or, you know, a domestic or any any interaction with the public where representation matters. People who look like you matter. Before you leave, if you want to pull somebody aside and say... Walker spends the meeting telling the candidates how the Guardians will help them through every step of the recruitment process. And then he opens up the floor. Any of you want to come up and ask any of the officers any questions now? 
Stephen Burton raises his hand. Once you get hired and you go through the academy and everything, right, and you do your year probation, how long does it take to be um, after patrol to be in a specialized unit? Is, uh, not, I, like, I like the ambition. I like the ambition. I like the ambition. What Stephen is asking is, what does it take to advance in the department and become something like a detective or join a special task force? Because it's one thing to bring in a new group of black candidates. It's another thing to see those black officers climb the ranks. Right now, as a lieutenant, Charlie Walker is the highest ranking black officer in the Yonkers Police Department. There are no black captains, no black chiefs, no black commissioners. Walker says that without high-ranking black officers, cops at lower ranks get discouraged. And because of that, you have black officers that have no faith in that process at all. We don't control how we promote. John Muller was the police commissioner in Yonkers at the time of this reporting. He says even if he wanted to change the process, which he believes is fair, it's not up to him. It's state civil service law. I can't change the law. I can't say... I want to uplift African-American lieutenants, and I want to make them captains if they don't score high enough. And it is an imperfect system. It is. Mueller thinks that if you get more black cops on the ground level, the entry level, it will trickle up to higher positions in the department over time. Like the first step is you get, you know, a diverse class of officers coming in, right? Once they come in, now you have more people that are of color that now are eligible to take the sergeant test and then more people of color that are sergeants to take the lieutenant's test and so on and so forth. Which is what the Be the Change program is supposed to do. And Charlie Walker still doesn't love the name. I would have liked help us to be the change, <laughs> right? It's acknowledging that um, we need to do the work and it's a collective. But he'd take it. Because finally, with the Be the Change program, there was an acknowledgement that something needed to be done. That the department had to cast a wider net and that these new recruits needed coaching through the exam process and needed to be trained for the physical. Let's work. Let's work. Which is why many of the Guardians were up early on a cold May morning on the sidelines of a high school track. Good, Steve. Good, Steve. Good, Steve. Keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. As Stephen Burton reaches the final straight, the Guardians start cheering louder. He lets out an emphatic yell as he crosses the finish line. Burton had to finish his run in 12 minutes and 53 seconds, and he smashed that number. I did it. I made it under 10:30. In fact, all 15 Guardians candidates who took the physical test that day passed it. Every one of them will be a Yonkers police officer, which is a big step in making a department like Yonkers more diverse. But it's just the first step. Dan Germa, NPR News, Yonkers. That reporting is part of a new series called Changing the Police from NPR's Embedded Podcast. In 2017, a car bomb killed a renowned investigative journalist on the Mediterranean island of Malta. A team of reporters decided to go where police investigators would not, and they uncovered a plot that reached to the highest levels of power. I mean, I was just gobsmacked, you know. We did identify the person who is now accused, officially charged, and a trial is happening. The investigation of journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia's death. Today on our daily podcast, Consider This. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. And from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR, 66 degrees now in the Boston area. Murky weather is settled in for the rest of the holiday and beyond. Showers should keep coming tonight, just a little cooler than it is right now, 60 degrees overnight. Then for tomorrow, more clouds, more showers. The flood watch ends tomorrow afternoon at 5 o'clock. Should only make it to the mid-60s tomorrow. Could hit 70, though, on Wednesday as the sunshine breaks through any remaining cloud cover. Some tricky going out there on the roads. Some roads are experiencing flooding and ponding and causing slowdowns, so be careful. 66 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.59. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Britain's Conservative Party has announced that Foreign Minister Liz Truss will be the nation's next Prime Minister, succeeding Boris Johnson. She says she's ready to get to work. I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills, but also dealing with the long-term issues we have on energy supply. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Liz Trucks takes the international stage. That story is coming up. One of the deadliest mass killings in Canada's history. A series of stabbings yesterday left 10 people dead, more than a dozen injured. Uh, It appears that some of the victims may have been targeted and some may be random. So to speak to a motive would be extremely difficult at this point in time. I'll have the latest on the investigation. Also, the percent of home buyers who get adjustable rate mortgages is at a 14-year high. The mortgages start with lower payments but can adjust much higher. We look at whether it's worth the risk. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. A federal judge has granted former President Donald Trump's request for a special master to review documents the FBI seized from his South Florida estate. That ruling from Judge Aileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, stops the Justice Department from reviewing or using them in its investigation. This even though the DOJ says it's already completed its review. President Biden will spend part of his Labor Day in Pittsburgh later today. The visit follows a speech in Milwaukee and is the second of two presidential stops in swing states as the midterm election season gets underway. Kylie Kuzinski from member station WESA has more. The president is scheduled to deliver remarks at a United Steelworkers Union Hall just outside of Pittsburgh. According to a White House statement, Biden's speech will focus on Labor Day and the dignity of American workers. Biden is no stranger to Pittsburgh's labor unions. He launched his 2020 presidential campaign at a union hall in the city. The visit to the city marks the third of his presidency. Biden will also be accompanied by U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. For NPR News, I'm Kylie Kaczynski in Pittsburgh. 
Heavy rain yesterday in northwest Georgia caused flash flooding and dangerously high waters. And more rain is on the way. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, Peter Biel reports that eight southern states are under flood watches through this evening. Several people in Georgia's Chattooga County had to be rescued from their homes by boat over the weekend. And the city of Somerville issued a boil water notice after rising waters flooded a water treatment plant. Vaughn Smith is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says this is a wet time of year, but it's unusual for storms to hover over one spot for so long. It's called training, where one, one storm went over the area, then another one went over the area, then another one, and it just, it just kept going over the exact same area. Smith says for this week, he expects another half inch to an inch of rain in the region per day. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has declared a state of emergency. For NPR News, I'm Peter Biello in Atlanta. Canadian police are still searching for two suspects connected to a series of stabbings that killed 10 people and injured 18 others in the province of Saskatchewan on Sunday. Emma Jacobs has more. In a news conference Sunday afternoon, police in the city of Saskatoon said one of the two suspects has been wanted since May. That's when the 30-year-old was released from prison but failed to meet with his parole officer. The men have been linked to stabbings in multiple locations across two rural communities, including the James Smith Cree Nation. As part of the ongoing manhunt, police set up road checkpoints and are warning people not to let strangers into their homes or vehicles. For NPR News, I'm Emma Jacobs in Montreal. Royal Canadian Mounted Police say even though the two suspects are still on the run, they have been charged with first degree and attempted murder, among other charges. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher at this hour. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Delays on some area roadways are easing up on this busy Labor Day travel day. On Cape Cod, there's now a three-mile backup approaching the Sagamore Bridge. Still no delay on the Bourne Bridge. On 95 South, traffic is slow for about 25 miles from York, Maine to Hampton, New Hampshire. Mass Turnpike eastbound is congested from Sturbridge to Charlton. Air traffic remains tricky at Logan. Inbound flights are delayed on average by 50 minutes because of the cloudy and rainy weather. Much of eastern and central Mass is under a flood watch through tomorrow afternoon. Rainfall totals of up to 5 inches are expected in the region. National Weather Service says areas with poor drainage are vulnerable to flooding. Up to six inches of rain have already fallen today in the Providence area, where many roads remain flooded. Vice President Kamala Harris has wrapped up a visit to Boston. This morning, she spoke at an annual breakfast of labor and political leaders in the city. Harris praised unions for their work fighting for higher wages for American workers. And she told attendees the Biden administration is working hard to lower costs for Americans on such things as health care through collective bargaining. Our administration, because of your support, gave Medicare the power to negotiate on behalf of over 60 million people. The Republican National Committee responded to Harris's visit, saying the administration has failed to control gasoline prices. Brookline police are investigating the case of church vandalism as a hate crime. The department said last week the United Parish reported someone burned the transgender pride flag on its front lawn on Harvard Street. Police believe it happened late last month. The church says it will overcome this kind of hatred. In sports, the Red Sox have won their last five games. They're looking to extend that this afternoon as they start up a road trip in Florida against Tampa Bay. 
Right now, the Sox have moved ahead of the Rays. It's now 3-1. to one. Sox in the third inning. Overnight tonight, more showers, more clouds. A little bit cooler than it is right now. About 60 degrees tonight. And for tomorrow, gray once again, wet once again. Uh, the flood watch ends tomorrow afternoon at 5 o'clock. Then Wednesday, partly sunny skies. Highs about 70. 66 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. A manhunt continues in Canada for two men suspected of stabbing 10 people to death and injuring more than a dozen others. The attacks took place in the province of Saskatchewan on Sunday. Authorities say people were stabbed in at least 13 different locations. It's considered one of the deadliest mass killings in Canada's history. Here's Regina Police Chief Evan Bray. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of anxiety in our province and in our communities this morning and all day yesterday. And uh, really, I think an important step for families and communities working through this will be to bring these two safely into custody. Bill Graveland is national correspondent for the Canadian press and joins us from Regina. Hi there. Hello there. What more can you tell us about these killings yesterday? Well, uh, the, the scary part, I think, is that uh, there's no actual motive for it. The fact that uh, police have indicated that uh, there are some of the attacks appear to be intentional, some of them appear to be random, and the fact that uh, they have basically disappeared after being spotted in uh, Regina uh, yesterday. They, meaning the two men that the arrest warrants are out for. W- what more is known about the, uh, the victims? They've only identified two so far. Uh, one is a, a mother from the uh, James uh, Smith uh, Cree Nation. The other is an elderly gentleman that uh, came from the uh, f- uh, village of Weldon. Um, he is apparently well-loved. Uh, uh, you know, he had neighbors that were talking about that he was like the kindest individual you'd meet. And then uh, the the mother from uh, from the James Smith uh, Cree Nation apparently had uh, left a couple of children behind. There was uh, some indication from his, her ex-husband on Facebook uh, was talking about the importance, uh, or you know, what a wonderful mother she had been. Hmm. And um, you know, it's. I think we're going to probably get more of an update later this afternoon on the uh, the people who are being identified. Okay. And uh, actually, uh, as much as I hate to do this, I just have noticed that there is a news conference with the uh, RCMP coming up in 15 minutes. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police, all right, we'll have updates from that. In the meantime, can you tell us about the communities where these attacks happened? Uh, The communities where they are or the communities how the people are reacting? Uh, Tell us about the environment where these attacks took place. I understand this is a rural area about 200 miles north of Regina, which is not a big city in and of itself. No, it's not. Uh, they're, they're, they're big as far as Saskatchewan goes. Uh, the people, uh, it's, it's actually kind of a sad situation in that uh, the area where the uh, attacks happened are not too far from where the Humboldt Broncos bus crash happened a few years ago. So these people in the area know what tragedy is. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is different this time. Uh, the the uh, James Smith Cree Nation 
is uh, has been pretty much shut down since uh, since the attacks. Uh, they're not talking to anybody. They've declared a state of local emergency, and uh, Weldon is a town of about or a village of about 200 people, uh, mostly a rural uh, sort of agrarian, a lot of farmers, a lot of ranchers, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 not a depressed area by any stretch, and. Uh, not traditionally has it been considered any kind of a problem area. Well, as police search for these two suspects, they put out an advisory and one line stood out to me. It said, for those returning home after long weekend travels, please look for evidence of suspicious activity at and around your home before entering it. Those sound like scary words. How are people in the community doing? People are, people are kind of scared. Uh, we talked to uh, one woman from Weldon who had been living there for six months, and she said for the first time last night she actually locked her door and uh, mostly to keep her 12 year old daughter uh, feeling safer. But I mean, every news release you see, it's like they're warning people not to uh, not to pick up hitchhikers. Beware of people that are approaching you. Um, you right. know, I think a lot of people in the, these communities and even here in Regina, which is down in the south part of the province, I think they're all looking over their shoulders a little bit. That's Bill Graveland, national correspondent for the Canadian Press, and we'll continue updating this story as we learn more. Thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you. With mortgage rates up sharply, a lot more home buyers are turning to adjustable rate loans. These can be more affordable, at least at first, but they come with a big risk that your mortgage payment might go up a lot in the future. So how do you know if the risk is worth it? NPR's Chris Arnold explains. Katrina Wooten is trying to buy a house near Gainesville, Florida. We hate where we're living right now. It's a trailer. It's falling apart. Wooten has three kids, and these days she has a good job as a nurse with the VA. So she saved up a down payment and signed a contract to buy a new home for about $375,000. The whole family was excited. So excited, especially my 14-year-old. You know, he's going to be out of my house probably in a few years, and he's never really had like a nice house to live in. But the house won't be finished getting built for a few months, and she hasn't locked in an interest rate on a mortgage. So if she were to get a mortgage today, the monthly payments would be hundreds of dollars higher than she budgeted for because rates have risen so much so quickly. I mean, I was having panic attacks over it because, of course, this is such a big deal for me. And now she doesn't know if she'll be able to afford the home. She thought about an adjustable rate loan, but... Adjustable rate mortgages scare me, for sure. They're scary because they can adjust to a higher payment than you can afford. But with mortgage rates rising so much, the share of people applying to get adjustable rate loans is the highest it's been in 15 years. These loans can be tantalizing. They start out with a lower interest rate, sometimes a full percentage point lower. Holden Lewis writes about mortgages for the personal finance site NerdWallet. A percentage point can make a really, really big difference in that monthly payment. And so they grasped for that rescue ring and adjustable rate mortgage. And Lewis says for some home buyers, that's okay. He says loans today are not the crazy adjustable mortgages that led to the housing crash. Those are illegal now. These days, the loans are usually fixed for either five, seven, or 10 years, and then they adjust to wherever rates are in the market. But they definitely have more risk than fixed rate loans. The whole reason they have a lower rate is that the bank or lender is handing off some of the risk of interest rates rising in the future to you. The lower rate is in effect your compensation for taking on that risk. When you get a fixed rate loan, if mortgage rates rise after that, that's the lender's problem. If you get an adjustable rate loan and mortgage rates rise, 
That's your problem. So the question becomes quite literally, can you afford to take on that added risk? Nathan Lindstrom is buying a house in Phoenix, Arizona. We are locked in with an adjustable rate 10-year arm at 4%. Lindstrom works in finance and the healthcare industry, and his loan won't adjust for 10 years. But at that point, if interest rates are really high, he has a plan and he wouldn't really be in trouble. My wife and I would be able to sell off some of our investments to to almost completely pay off the house. So if you can afford to pay off a big chunk of your mortgage, you have a way out if rates go up a lot. But people without a big income and much savings, many probably can't afford to take on the risk of an adjustable rate loan. Katrina Wooten in Florida doesn't want to get stuck with a mortgage that she can't afford. I did grow up poor, and I was the first one in my family to go to college and graduate. And I'm really trying to not screw myself or my family over to not take that big of a risk because I absolutely don't have any family to turn to if this all falls apart, if this is all on me and it's got to work out. (laughs) Wooten says she'd rather take on a higher interest rate and a fixed rate loan, even if it means living really frugally for a while and then hope rates fall again before too long so she can refinance. Chris Arnold, NPR News. This past spring, the U.S. Forest Service issued a 90-day ban on controlled fires, which are set intentionally to help reduce wildfire dangers. The ban recently expired, but there's been debate about the risks and benefits of these intentional burns. And the Forest Service still hasn't said how it's going to handle them going forward. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports. In May, Forest Service Chief Randy Moore announced an unusual 90-day pause of all controlled burning on national forests after a controlled fire got out of control and started the biggest wildfire in New Mexico's recorded history. The Forest Service is investigating its own protocols that led to that burn being lit after an extremely dry winter. Well, that 90-day pause has now come and gone, and a decision about whether to lift it or keep the burn ban in place could come this week. Andrew Sanchez-Metter runs a forest restoration think tank at Northern Arizona University. Those are difficult decisions, and I don't envy the chief of the Forest Service. With climate change and forests overgrown from a century of the U.S. Forest Service stopping naturally burning wildfires, he says controlled burns can get dicey no matter what time of year it is. Chief Moore insisted his pause would have minimal impact on wildfire prevention and mitigation projects because generally federal land managers wouldn't be doing burns in the height of summer. Now there's pressure to lift the burn ban for the fall, at least in some areas where heavy monsoon rains hit. Rich Fairbank spent most of his career fighting fires for the Forest Service. He says the whole issue of controlled burns gets political real quick. you got to admit, it's a very risky thing to ask some senior land manager to light a fire in the winter when if it gets away, it's on him, than to fight a wildfire where you're a hero no matter what happens. Still, foresters like Fairbanks are seeing a slow evolution within the Forest Service and the public, an acceptance that fire is a critical part of the ecosystem and it needs to be brought back if we're ever going to make some of these modern extreme wildfires even just manageable again. In the Democrats' new infrastructure and inflation laws, tens of millions of dollars are going to preventative projects like tree thinning and controlled burning. So we're, we're seeing that discussion happening. Again, Andrew Sanchez-Metter. It takes a while to change the policy. It takes a while to kind of implement those. 
Um, but unfortunately, you know, we're, we're also working against a clock. He means there's a backlog of millions of acres of forests that need treatment now. And every time we suppress another wildfire, that just leaves more fuel on the ground and problems for next year. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, activist for racial equality Ruby Bridges tells her story through the eyes of her six-year-old self. In business, U.S. stock market was closed for the Labor Day holiday today. A Christmas tree shortage could be brewing in years ahead because of the drought. That's according to David Morin, who owns Arrowhead Acres Tree Farm in Uxbridge. Most of the seedling trees that are planted that were planted this spring have a high mortality rate because of the drought. Their roots don't go very deep. Christmas trees can take 8 to 10 years to mature, so in about a decade it may be hard for Massachusetts residents to find the tree they can cut from the ground. The good news, though, is that the older trees have deep roots that make them resistant to drought, so this year's mature crop should not be affected by the dry weather this summer. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh Grass Festival in the Berkshires, September 23rd through 25th. Gary Clark Jr., Old Crow Medicine Show, Tanya Tucker, and more. Freshgrass.com slash WBUR. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. This reminder, tomorrow is primary day in Massachusetts. Polls open at 7 a.m. and close at 8 p.m. We'll have live election updates on WBUR and at WBUR.org. Red Sox are laboring on this holiday. They're down in St. Petersburg to take on the Tampa Bay Rays. Sox have now moved ahead of the Rays. It's 3-1 to one in the fourth inning. In the forecast, kind of soupy out there for the Labor Day holiday. Showers overnight tonight. Just dipping to about 60 degrees, not too much cooler than it is right now. Tomorrow may not make it out of the 60s as clouds and showers dominate the day. Around midweek, we should make it to about 70 degrees with plenty of sunshine and a few clouds around the off chance of a shower as well. This is WBUR, 66 degrees now. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from TIAA dedicated to helping people secure their financial futures with lifetime retirement income. Learn more at TIAA.org slash never run out. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The morning of November 14th, 1960, a little girl named Ruby Bridges became the first black child to desegregate the all-white William France Elementary School in New Orleans. Ruby was six, and as she got dressed and left for school that day, she told me she didn't know she was making history. I had no idea that it was going to be a white school wasn't something that my parents explained to me. As a matter of fact, the only thing they said is, Ruby, you're going to go to a new school today and you better behave. Four federal marshals had to drive her. 
and an angry white mob greeted her at the school. They got places for you. Living in New Orleans, I was accustomed to Mardi Gras. And that's exactly what it looked like to me. White people, black people all lined up together and, you know, shouting and waving their hands and throwing things. Today, Ruby Bridges is a civil rights activist and an author. Her new children's book, I Am Ruby Bridges, tells her story through her six-year-old eyes. So I asked her to read a bit for me. Second day, when I arrived at my classroom, my new teacher opens the door and greets me. Hi, I'm Mrs. Henry, your teacher. Come in and take a seat, she says. And aren't I surprised because she is also white. I never had a white teacher before. The biggest surprise of all, I am the only kid in the class. I didn't see any other kids at all, not one. That test must have been a lot harder than I thought. Why am I the only kid in my class? Not to mention, the only kid in the whole school. And why don't I see anyone who looks like me? And then that's when it hit me. As I was reading, it took me a minute to get that, that why there were no other kids. Um, this is because white parents had come to school and, and pulled their kids out, taken them home? Absolutely. When I arrived on the first day, the mob of people standing outside rushed inside of the building behind me. I was escorted to the principal's office where I sat the whole, in, whole day with my mom waiting to be assigned to a classroom, but that did not happen because every one of those parents rushed in behind me, went into every classroom and they pulled out every child. I watched them parade right past me out of the school building. And so by the time I got there on the second day, the school was totally empty. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Did it get better? Did, did kids, other kids eventually show up? You know, um, I think part of the story that lots of people are not aware of is that there were some white parents who actually tried to cross that same picket line, that same mob, during that year to bring their kids to school with me. But it was only a handful, maybe five six kids and uh, the principal would take them and she would hide them so that they would never see me and I would never see them. I remember hearing voices but I never saw kids and it kept me wondering where the voices were coming from. If they were real at all, what I did not know is that um, every time I would mention it to Mrs. Henry, she was going to the principal and advocating for me she was saying, you know, the laws changed and kids can be together now, but you're hiding them from Ruby. If you don't allow them to come together, I'm going to report you to the superintendent. And that forced them to allow Mrs. Henry to take me to where they were being hidden. And that was near the end of the year. Near the end of the year. I'm thinking I just introduced you as the first African-American student to integrate an elementary school in the South. And it sounds like integrate was way too strong a word for what was happening at that school for most of that school year. Yes. Um, you know, that was always 
something that bothered me. I, I was the only kid and it stayed that way um, until the end of the year when Mrs. Henry took me to this other classroom and opened the door and lo and behold, there they were, four or five kids sitting there playing. And I was so excited. It didn't matter to me what they looked like. I just wanted someone my own age to play with. So I was excited to find them finally. But I have to say that that was the day that I realized that everything was about me and the color of my skin because a little boy said, I can't play with you. My mom said not to play with you and he called me the N word. And um, that's when I had my aha moment that the reason why there were no kids here was because of me and the color of my skin. He actually made it make sense. I did not realize what was going on around me until he told me. And that, my first encounter with racism, he introduced it to me. You're only in your 60s now. What happened to you that first day of school was so recent in the grand scheme of things. And it occurs to me that the kids reading this today, um, many, most of them will take it for granted that black and white kids go to school together. This is totally normal. Like, how else would it be? They've never known anything else. How did, how did you think about writing to kids for whom this must feel like ancient history in a way? And yet it so clearly isn't. What I've found in the past 25 years visiting schools and talking to kids and working with them, I think that they relate to the loneliness. They relate to someone not wanting to play with you for no real good reason, not giving you a chance. And so kids, it resonates with them. They don't quite understand why someone would do that, why someone would treat another person like that. And I think that they feel like, why don't we give each other a chance? Try to get to know each other, that everyone at that age wants a friend to play with. And I think that that's part of what they resonate with. The fact that it's also explaining a time in history when we couldn't be together. You know, it touches on something that I truly want them to understand. That racism just does not make any sense. And they get that. And, you know, once this book is closed and I know that they've gotten that, then I feel like part of my work is done. We've been speaking with Ruby Bridges, author of the children's book, I Am Ruby Bridges, How One Six-Year-Old Girl's March to School Changed the World. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Some tricky going out there on the roads right now. Some roads are experiencing flooding and ponding and causing slowdowns, so be careful. Our flood watch remains in effect through tomorrow afternoon at 5 o'clock. Excessive runoff may result in flooding of rivers, streams, and other low-lying flood-prone locations. Flooding can also happen in poor drainage in urban areas. We could have three to five inches more of uh, through southern New England, more of rain with localized amounts of five to seven inches. This is WBUR. It's 530. The life of a digital influencer. Primp, place product, post, and cha-ching. There's this image of, oh, I get paid to put up pretty pictures all day. But that's not it at all. There is such an incredible amount of labor. Much of it remains concealed behind the, the scenes or behind the screens. Inside Influencer Life, on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. Parades and other gatherings are being held across the nation to mark Labor Day. And NPR's Don Gagne reports labor unions are gearing up to mobilize voters on behalf of pro-labor candidates in this year's midterms. Overwhelmingly, union endorsements go to Democrats. AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler says that's because Democrats are far more likely to back unions on the issues including the right to organize. It happens to be that President Biden, who is a Democrat, has been very much a pro-union president. So we are proud of the track record that he has had. And that translates down at every level, you know, from city council to Congress and the United States Senate. It's through an issues-based lens. Schuler says this year's voter turnout push will be a grassroots effort from the shop floor to union halls. Polls show unions getting their highest public approval scores in more than a half century. Don Gagne, NPR News. An excessive heat warning remains in effect for several cities in California, Arizona, and Nevada as a massive heat wave in the West intensifies. California's Public Utilities Commission President Alice Reynolds says it's increasing the chance of power outages. We're entering the heart of this heat event, and it is expected to last longer and reach higher temperatures than previously anticipated. Residents are being urged to stop using electrical appliances after 4 p.m. Residents of Mississippi's capital city, Jackson, still don't have usable running water a week after a water treatment plant failed amid flooding. Water pressure has largely been restored but is unsafe to drink. An emergency declaration is still in effect and crews are fanned out across the city to distribute bottled water. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. You need some patience behind the driver's wheel today. There are long delays on highways and roads leading to Massachusetts. On Route 95 North in Providence, a section of the highway is shut down because of flooding. Upwards of six inches of rain have fallen around Providence. On 95 South, there's a 25-mile backup from York, Maine to Hampton, New Hampshire, thanks to plain old congestion. To the south, there's a three-mile backup on Cape Cod for drivers approaching the Sagamore Bridge. Vice President Kamala Harris was in Boston today meeting local union leaders at an annual Labor Day breakfast. Harris reiterated the Biden administration's commitment to labor, and she also denounced Republican leaders saying their policies hurt workers. WBR's Yasmeen Ammer has more. Local union leaders called the Biden administration one of the most pro-union in the country's history. 
Harris touted the administration's 2021 infrastructure bill, saying it creates more jobs for workers. She also accused GOP leaders of trying to reverse workers' rights. But instead of standing with working people to lower the price of health care, education, child care, these extremist so-called leaders prioritize breaks for big corporations and the wealthiest 1%. According to the National Labor Relations Board, petitions for union membership in the U.S. were up almost 60 percent in the first half of this fiscal year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer. Striking workers at a Starbucks on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston are picketing outside the store on this Labor Day. The 50-day strike is the longest in Starbucks history. It began in June. Picketers are calling for more working hours and for the company to honor the mental health needs of staff. Topaz Leo is a barista on strike. I would like more support from corporate and more support from uh, management at the district level. They have not given us the kind of support we need, and sometimes they have been actively antagonistic to us. Starbucks says it respects its employees' right to strike. A Newton-based organization is helping parents and children who are struggling to afford school supplies. Cradles to Crayons Executive Director Aubrey Henderson says this year it's distributing 70,000 stuffed backpacks statewide. Families can reach out to their public schools to get a backpack full of the school supplies that the schools have access for. So it's a lot of the things you would think about, notebooks, pencils, crayons, markers, and lots of different paper supplies. Henderson says this is the largest number of backpacks with supplies in the organization that is distributed in a uh, one year in its 20-year history. Red Sox have moved ahead of the Rays. It is to 3-1 now in the middle of the fifth. And in the forecast, murky weather has planted itself in the region for a while. Lots of showers tonight. A little bit cooler, moving down to just about 60 overnight. Tomorrow, more clouds, more showers should make it to the mid-60s. Wednesday, some sunshine with highs about 70. 66 now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. It's official, the UK has a new prime minister. A limited circle of just about 170,000 Conservative Party members chose Foreign Minister Liz Truss for the role. Queen Elizabeth is expected to formally appoint Truss Prime Minister tomorrow afternoon. Reporter Willem Marx has more from London. It was the moment an excited Conservative Party and an exhausted country had been waiting months for. Liz Truss, 81,000. Therefore, I give notice that Liz Truss is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. <laughs> for the fourth time in six years, the Conservatives had a new leader, meaning Britain would have a new Prime Minister. Those 81,000 votes, all it took from grassroots members of a party Liz Truss joined as a student. It hardly represented a national mandate, but Truss told the crowd at the Queen Elizabeth Conference Centre in Westminster what she hoped would happen. I will deliver a bold plan to cut taxes and grow our economy. Truss draws inspiration from her predecessor, Margaret Thatcher, and will be only the third woman to take power in 10 Downing Street. 
She'll do so with the cost of living in modern Britain under threat from rampant inflation and extraordinarily high energy costs. I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills, but also dealing with the long-term issues we have on energy supply. Truss has promised to provide detailed proposals later this week, but after a summer of government inaction, she first sought to thank her immediate predecessor, the man she'll replace in Downing Street, her friend, as she called him, Boris Johnson. Boris, you got Brexit done. You rolled out the vaccine and you stood up to Vladimir Putin. You were admired from Kiev to Carlisle. Applause for Johnson came, but slowly. I think the world's expectations of stability from Britain changed with Brexit. And to some extent, Britain is working through the consequences of that. And that's what some of his changes as Prime Ministers have represented. Bronwyn Maddox is chief executive of the Chatham House think tank that focuses on foreign affairs. She says Truss, the country's foreign minister for the past year, may struggle to maintain her hawkish international position on issues like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, even though the conflict may be partially responsible for recent financial pressures at home. I think promises about defence spending are going to be extremely hard to meet. Liz Truss has said that she would raise spending to 2.5% of GDP and then soon after to 3%. And there are good defence and strategic arguments for that, um, summarising the word Ukraine, but not limited to that. But I think there are going to be so many other calls on the public finances. Trust will need to restore relations with Europe, damaged by Brexit, but may also choose to recalibrate the UK-US relationship, Maddox says, over divisive issues like Northern Ireland and the Afghan withdrawal. Her political supporters in Parliament say she is the right person to meet these challenges. That includes longtime minister and a former Conservative Party chairman, James Cleverley, who told Sky News he'd worked closely with Truss in previous governments. She's incredibly hardworking, incredibly focused, and what we've seen through this campaign is uh, she is willing to put in the hard yards to get the results that we need. And I think those are perfect attributes for the person stepping in as our next Prime Minister. Few politicians would choose to take on such a difficult role at such a perilous moment. A poisoned chalice, as some commentators have called it. But for Liz Truss, after months of campaigning, she no longer has a choice. For NPR News, I'm Bill and Marks in London. The Carpathian Mountains are a wildly popular vacation destination for Ukrainians. Located in the far western part of the country, the vast mountain chain offers visitors the quiet of nature and stunning views. And as NPR's Ashley Westerman reports from a mountain resort town there, some people are still determined to take a break, even as Russia's invasion has decimated Ukraine's tourism industry as a whole. We're at the Lviv train station. Where are we getting ready to go? We have a train to Ukraine, but we're going to drop off. Before that, and My husband that. booked us a little getaway to Slavske, a tiny tourism town in the Carpathian Mountains, only about two hours from Lviv by train. And honestly, as the train pulled out of the station, I was thinking it might actually be a pretty quiet trip. Russia's invasion has brought Ukraine's tourism sector to a standstill. And indeed, our first hours in Slavske were very quiet. Well, except... Air raid sirens rang out a handful of times. It was Ukraine's Independence Day, so the country was on high alert. The sirens didn't seem to bother the other guests at our hotel, which was booked solid the whole time we were there. But that appears to have been a blip. 
Katerina Minich, the manager, told me via Telegram that the number of guests has been down some 60% this year compared to last. And they're projected to make 70 to 80% less money. She says other hotels in the area have the same story. A few kilometers away in a cafe atop Zakhar Berkut Mountain, I asked the young woman behind the counter, Christina Merashuk, the same question. What's the comparison in people who have come here last year to this year, would you say? She says there were way more people last year. Can you guess? How many? There's around 50% less, Mayor Shuk says, but she's not completely sure. Mariana Alexev heads Ukraine State Agency for Tourism Development. A lot of people in Ukraine, they still don't feel it's okay to go on vacation or to travel. She says her agency has found that some people feel guilty knowing that many of their fellow countrymen are still displaced or sleeping in ditches fighting Russians. Tour operators across Ukraine have reported occupancy being down up to 50 percent this summer, and that's in the safe areas of the country. When we talk about south of the country, of course, tourism have stopped uh, there completely. Ukraine's tourism sector last year was just starting to recover from the pandemic, she says. Now they'll have to start again, and they plan to, immediately, with a new campaign called Get Inspired by Ukraine, which aims to tell Ukrainians they have a right to take a rest. At some point, we need to stop and, you know, just take a breath and maybe don't be so much involved in the news. Two people, let's go. Back in Slavske, Natalia Baluk and I struggle onto one of the Soviet-era chairlifts that takes riders up the mountain. Gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> the 35-year-old from Kyiv is on a getaway with friends. I ask, how does it feel taking a break while her country is at war? I feel just okay because I think that in order to be more effective, you have to relax sometimes. Uh, otherwise, you will just not be able to do anything and then you will not serve this country. As we rode along, the chairs we passed were mostly full of Ukrainians who came here for fresh air, beautiful scenery, and likely to forget about reality, even for just a short while. Ashley Westerman, NPR News, Slavske, Ukraine. Scientists are looking at a range of impacts from climate change, including one that really gets under the skin. That's the human body's ability to sweat and cool down in high humidity. It's important to know that things are a little bit worse physiologically than we thought in terms of impending climate change. Examining how well our bodies can withstand a warming planet tomorrow on All Things Considered. Listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. About 42 million Americans do not have reliable Internet service. One Michigan man is building his own high-speed service, and he's already hooked up dozens of neighbors who still relied on dial-up. NPR's Emma Bowman has the story. Before the pandemic forced many of us to work from home, Jared Motch had been at it for almost 20 years. But his hunt for good Internet was unending. When he first moved to rural Michigan in a town not far from Ann Arbor, his job set him up with a great internet connection, while many of his neighbors were still stuck in the slow days of dial-up. My company provided a T1 line, 
which was really great. It was 1.5 megabit up and down. But that was 2002. And eventually over time, as the number of children we had grew and as the business activities that I did for my employers, this really was no longer meeting my needs. But when he started shopping around, he wasn't happy with his options. The internet speeds from AT&T were painfully slow. Comcast wanted to charge him an upfront fee of $50,000. He opted for a third route. Rather than shell out money only to have to depend on the whims of an internet service provider, he started his own fiber ISP. It ended up being a 10-year project. He ended up creating the company eventually in 2017, getting permits in 2019, sent out letters to everyone, let them know that, you know, construction was going to be starting. In August of 2020, he was officially in business, just in time for his kids to start virtual school during the pandemic. And it was great. I had this fiber at my home that I controlled and could deliver the type of service that I really wanted to have. Along the way, he also hooked up neighbors to his fiber line. And those neighbors told their neighbors, now he's got 70 customers. The federal government, meanwhile, has been pouring billions into fiber infrastructure in recent years, especially in unserved rural areas, where experts say the Comcasts and AT&Ts of the world often aren't expanding because they don't see a return on investment. But Gary Bolton, CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association, says people like Motch aren't waiting around for governments to get the money needed to get decent internet. You have these rugged individuals, we can call mavericks, that have gone out to see how they can solve an issue with their community and set up broadband connection to their home and then to their neighbors. You know, some of them have been able to build it without government assistance. In all, Motch says he spent about $300,000 out of his own pocket building his service. I managed to sign up enough customers along the way that I've been breaking even. My goal wasn't necessarily to make a lot of money doing this, but be able to connect people that really needed it. But now, those federal funds are flowing. Motch is getting $2.6 million to continue his work thanks to a COVID-19 relief package that allocated $15 million to the county of Washtenaw, where Motch lives. With that money, Motch plans to get 600 more homes connected, about a quarter of the work that needs to be done to get his county to 100% reliable internet. He usually charges about $200 for installation, with monthly rates starting at $65. He tries to keep his prices fair. Some people have the means to support the project, and some people don't. And I've adapted my approach for every person and how I market to the homes and when I interact with them. And at least for now, he seems to be keeping his neighbors happy. So far, I've lost zero customers. Everybody that's gotten connected has stayed connected. Emma Bowman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, film critic Bob Mondello looks at whether Hollywood can keep up its blockbusting momentum from the summertime and power it through the fall. That's just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. 
In sports, Sox are down in St. Petersburg to start up a three-game series with the Rays. The Sox are now leading in the fifth inning, 3-2. to two. This is 90.9 WBUR. Keep an eye out for some ponding on the roads. A flood watch remains in effect through tomorrow afternoon at 5 o'clock. The forecast pretty soupy for this holiday. Look for more showers continuing tonight, down around 60 for low. Tomorrow, showers through the day in the mid-60s tops. Then Wednesday, finally, we should see some sunshine. Still dim by some clouds, though, and maybe a shower moving up to 70 degrees. I'd really like to do some more cool stuff because, um, like, the Boy Scouts get to do, like, wood cutting and obstacle courses, and the Girl Scouts doesn't really do much of that. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. After a two-year dry spell, Hollywood's summer blockbusters finally busted some blocks this year. Superheroes, dinosaurs, minions, and a certain Navy fighter pilot brought moviegoers back to cinemas. Now the question is how to keep that momentum going. Bob Mondello has a couple dozen answers in his fall movie preview. In case there was any doubt, things will not get quieter as the weather cools. The Black Panther lives. When actor Chadwick Boseman died two years ago, there was never a question that the Black Panther saga would go on, but the palpable grief that powers the trailer for Wakanda Forever suggests that it's not just the characters, but the cast and crew who are preparing to do battle in Boseman's memory. I am queen of the most powerful nation in the world, and my entire family is gone. Have I not given everything? All of the first film's women warriors are back, and they'll be joined at the Cineplex by some real-life predecessors. In the historical epic The Woman King, Viola Davis plays a 19th-century African general who led an all-woman army against European slave traders. We are the homies! Also based on true battlefield exploits, the Korean war drama Devotion, which centers on a pair of Navy top guns, black pilot and white wingman, at a time when that pairing raised eyebrows. It must be hard being the uh, naval aviator. Absolutely. But no one's spoiling for a fight quite as much as Black Adam. I was a slave until I died. Dwayne Johnson is the DC superhero. Then I was reborn a god. Who's been nursing a grudge for centuries. Now. I kneel before no one. Less prone to pronouncements, but arguably with more at stake, is the 13-year-old title character in the science fiction thriller Vesper, a girl who's living in a future where biological experiments have wiped out all the Earth's edible plants and where her talent for biohacking is unique. Vesper, you can change everything. Gorgeous effects work does a lot of the world building in Vesper. Enough with the fighting for survival, you say? Well, Hollywood's not just about battles on a global scale, though sometimes even romantic comedies can play like warfare. Oh, come on. You've got to be kidding me. Excuse me, ma'am, I need to sit somewhere else. We used to be married. Worst 19 years of my life. We were only married for five. I'm counting the recovery. Julia Roberts and George Clooney. In four days' time... Our daughter's going to marry a guy she just met. Join forces in Ticket to Paradise to keep their daughter from making the same mistake they did. We need to trick her into dumping him. As much as this will pain us both, we have to call a truce to make this work. It'd be a lockstep. Hey! Did you make a pact to not murder each other until you murder me first? We are... Here for you, my love. Yes, we're in lockstep. Yes. 
Meanwhile, in the comedy Bros, commitment-phobic Billy Eichner thinks he doesn't want any part of romance until he meets muscle-gay Luke McFarlane. You met a guy? I don't think I'm his type. He's like gay Tom Brady. What are you into? One of these ripped idiots with no opinions? No, I'd like someone who's physically very frail and won't stop talking. And while they're falling in love in Bros, a couple of lifelong Irish pals have a falling out in the Banshees of Inisherin. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. Well, you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. You like me yesterday. Because Banshees of Inisherin is the work of writer-director Martin McDonough, count on it being both darkly funny and menacing, that also describes two cruise ship satires, Triangle of Sadness, a literal takedown of wealth and privilege. On a $250 million luxury yacht. The ship is going under. And Menu, in which Ray Fiennes has a surprise for his passengers. He's not just a chef, he's a storyteller. The game is trying to guess what the overarching theme of the entire meal is going to be. You won't know till the end. Actually, they figure it out pretty quickly. This menu. The pictures, they're of us. Christ. This is just theater, it's stagecraft. Also caught unawares, the women in a social experiment in the film Don't Worry Darling. They live in a 1950s suburban paradise, isolated in the desert, while their husbands do... That's not entirely clear, but it rattles the walls. Boys and their toys. At least we know they're getting work done. What do you think they're really doing out there? What do you mean? Don't Worry Darling stars Florence Pugh, Harry Styles, and Chris Pine. In the Sundance sensation Nanny, Anna Diop plays a Senegalese woman who's just as blindsided when her job with a wealthy New York couple takes a dark turn. A whole acting company gets blindsided in the comedy See How They Run when the murder mystery they're rehearsing results in an actual murder. The victim's name is Leo Kopernik, sir. Seems he was killed in the costume store and then he was deposited here. Staged, so to speak. And there appears to be a similar issue in the movie Amsterdam, a secrecy-shrouded what's-it from American Hustle's David O. Russell. Get a dead white man in a box. Not even a casket. Doesn't even have a top on it. Do me a favor. Try to be optimistic. That's good advice, and for me, too. I've been dwelling here on relatively dark fall movies. There are plenty of others that are bright and optimistic. A new Disney animated film, for instance, created in the style of a 1950s sci-fi flick. Strange World, a new motion picture event. Brace yourself! And the live-action comedy Lyle Lyle Crocodile, about a boy who has a reptilian pal who's voiced by pop star Shawn Mendes. Mom, I swear to you, he's not dangerous. He's a crocodile! He's not like that, he wears a scarf. And he can sing. Steven Spielberg has a warm family film called The Fablemans, based on his own childhood in Arizona. And there's even a seriously upbeat documentary, Goodnight Oppie, about NASA's Mars rover, which is called Opportunity. Oppie was expected to have a lifespan of three months, but to everyone's astonishment, she kept overcoming obstacles for 15 years. She noticed that she was sliding too much downhill and stopped just centimeters from the tip of her solar panel. We all had heart attacks, but her autonomy saved us. Poppy has a serious Wally vibe. She could be his cousin if robots had cousins. Tougher stories, meanwhile, are largely left to biopics, some of them clearly aiming for awards consideration. Start with Till, which recounts the tragic story of 14-year-old Emmett Till, who was abducted, tortured, and lynched in Mississippi in 1955. His mother Mamie's insistence that he have an open casket. Can I at least just 
Fix them up a bit. No, they have to see it for themselves. Changed the course of the civil rights movement. The lynching of my son has shown me that what happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of us all. Other true stories include the silent twins about sisters in 1960s Britain who communicated only with each other. If there's something you want to communicate, you best say it now. And found themselves institutionalized for 11 years. There's also Tar, a portrait of Lydia Tar, a groundbreaking German symphony conductor. She's played by Kate Blanchett in a film that looks to be ferociously stylized. And then there's a case of Hollywood airing its own dirty laundry. We're from the New York Times. I believe he used to work for Harvey Weinstein. She said the story of the investigation at the heart of the Me Too movement. People have tried to write this story before. He kills it every time. Harvey adamantly denies any allegation of assault. He played people. He was a master manipulator. She said is directed and scripted by women, who really ought to have the last word, as we head into Thanksgiving, saving the holiday attractions for next time. Avatar 2, anyone? I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. More at nature.org solutions. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is WBUR. Lots of wet out there on this Labor Day. More showers continuing tonight down around the 60s for the low. Tomorrow showers again through the day in the mid-60s tops. Then Wednesday we should finally see some sunshine. Dim by a few clouds. Could have some showers as well. Moving up to about 70 degrees. Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays are in the top of the sixth down in Florida. And the Sox so far are holding on to a 3-2 lead. This is WBUR. It's 559. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The largest nuclear power plant in Ukraine lost its main connection to the power grid again this weekend as shelling continued around it, regardless of the presence of international inspectors. The physical integrity of the facility has been violated not once, but several times. It's Labor Day, September 5th. This is All Things Considered. latest from Ukraine coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. A federal judge has granted former President Trump's request for a third-party review of material seized from Mar-a-Lago that temporarily puts a halt to prosecutors using them in their investigation. Traffic fatalities in the U.S. are the highest they've been in 20 years, despite steady improvements in auto safety and declines in drunk driving. And as the autumn months inch closer, we look back at the hottest songs of the summer. This is WBUR. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is asking union members to join him in his recent call to protect democracy. Chuck Hornbach of member station WUWM reports Biden spoke today at a Labor Day gathering in Milwaukee. The president repeated claims he made in a speech last week that Republican extremism emphasizes hate, anger, violence, and division. Speaking to hundreds of people at Milwaukee's Labor Fest, Biden called on the audience to look toward the future. A future of unity, of hope, of optimism. We're going to choose to build a better America. A better America. Republicans say the president needs to focus on reducing inflation and crime, issues the GOP says matter to workers. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Kornbach in Milwaukee. Europe's largest nuclear plant was knocked off Ukraine's electricity grid after its last transmission line was disconnected after a fire caused by Russian shelling. The IAEA says it was informed today by Ukrainian authorities that the reserve line was deliberately disconnected in order to extinguish a fire and it will be reconnected once the fire is out. This fueled fears of a potential nuclear disaster at Zaporizhia, which is one of the 10 biggest nuclear plants in the world. An emergency declaration continues in Mississippi's capital, Jackson. Water pressure has been restored to nearly all residents in the city, but a boil notice that began more than a month ago remains in effect. For Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Kobe Vance has more. Flooding in the city last month contaminated the water intake at the plant, slowing production and draining storage tanks across the city. Last week, Mississippi's Governor Tate Reeves was joined by Jackson's mayor in calling for unity. Now, Reeves is shifting the blame onto city leadership. Basic work to maintain the facilities was not done because the few heroic staff in that plant had been abandoned. Whatever investment comes next, basic competency to run a water system has to come with it. Jackson is one of many cities across the nation where white residents have left en masse, leaving the cost of the city's infrastructure to be covered by majority black and low-income residents. For NPR News, I'm Kobe Vance in Jackson. Britain's Conservative Party has chosen Foreign Secretary Liz Truss as the party's new leader. She'll take office tomorrow as the UK's new Prime Minister, replacing Boris Johnson. Truss will have to deal with leading the country through a severe cost-of-living crisis. Queen Elizabeth is scheduled to formally name Truss as Britain's Prime Minister tomorrow. That ceremony will take place at Balmore Estate in Scotland, where the Queen is spending her summer rather than at Buckingham Palace. Wall Street is closed today in honor of Labor Day. U.S. futures contracts are trading higher at last check. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. A flood watch is in effect through tomorrow afternoon for Massachusetts, except for the Berkshires, Cape Cod, and the islands. Another one to four inches of rain could fall by Wednesday morning. After today's soggy weather that already saw up to six inches of rainfall in Providence, Rhode Island, a section of Interstate 95 in Providence is closed this evening because it's flooded. Elsewhere, it's a pretty slow ride for Labor Day travelers on some other highways. There's a 20-mile backup on 95 southbound from York, Maine to Hampshire, uh, Hampton, New Hampshire. There's a two-mile backup leaving Cape Cod at the Sagamore Bridge. And the Mass Turnpike eastbound is slow between Sturbridge and Charlton. Flying also has its challenges today. Inbound flights are delayed at Logan Airport between 30 and 50 minutes on average. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is creating what she calls a cabinet for worker empowerment. She says the new office will work to ensure equitable economic recovery from the pandemic. 
Trin Nguyen will lead the cabinet. She currently works for the city in another labor-oriented role. And new research from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard details some of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on people in nursing homes. WBOR's Jonathan Kane has more. The research found nursing home residents lost more weight and were more likely to have depressive symptoms during 2020 than in pre-pandemic years. That was the case even in facilities where there were no COVID outbreaks. Study co-author Michael Barnett says bans on visitors and communal activities likely contributed. I think we have pretty clear evidence that the policies and changes that happened in 2020 for nursing homes might have actually had a pretty big spillover effect in people who didn't have COVID. Barnett says future policymakers should consider the consequences of infection prevention measures against the magnitude of the public health threat. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. In the forecast, more rain tonight, just a bit cooler than it is right now. It's 66 degrees right now, should be about 60 overnight. Tomorrow, more clouds, more showers. Again, the flood watch ends tomorrow afternoon at 5 o'clock. Should make it to the mid-60s tomorrow. Then it could hit 70 on Wednesday as the sunshine breaks through the remaining clouds for the day. Again, 66 degrees now in Boston at 606. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. It's a court victory for former President Donald Trump. Today, a federal judge in Florida granted his request for a special master to review documents the FBI seized from Trump's Florida estate. That judge is also putting a temporary halt on the Justice Department's ability to use those papers in its criminal probe. NPR Justice correspondent Kerry Johnson is following every turn of this story. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. Much like you and me, this judge is working on Labor Day. What are the takeaways from her ruling? Judge Eileen Cannon, who was appointed to the bench by former President Trump, has handed the former president a big, if temporary, win. She says an independent arbiter or a special master should review the 11,000 pages of papers the FBI took from Mar-a-Lago last month. The judge talked about the need to ensure the appearance of fairness and integrity in this process under the extraordinary circumstance of the Justice Department investigating a former president. She says the special master is going to look through these papers to see if there are any materials related to attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. The judge says federal prosecutors investigating obstruction and mishandling of government secrets will be barred at least temporarily from using these papers in that part of the criminal probe. But since the papers were taken, we've learned a lot about them. Tell us what's known. Yeah, the FBI took about 27 boxes from the resort during its search early last month. We now know that included at least 100 classified documents, including some marked at the highest level of classification. The FBI also found several dozen folders marked classified, but those folders were empty. And mingled in with these papers were personal items like clothing and gifts. Investigators also found former President Trump's passports in a desk drawer with some secret papers. Now, the former president told people at a rally over the weekend the FBI search was an abuse of power. But remember, it was approved by a federal magistrate judge who found probable cause that a crime had been committed here. Now, the Justice Department had argued that there was no need for a special master. They said it would delay the investigation. What's their reaction today from this ruling? 
The Justice Department is reviewing the decision and will consider appropriate next steps, which may include an appeal. Last week, prosecutors suggested they were going to use these papers to interview more witnesses and conduct more activity before the grand jury. The judge has put a halt to that, at least for now. But the judge says that won't apply to the national security review that's being done by the intelligence community, which is looking at whether anyone else gained access to the access to these sensitive papers. Any idea how quickly the special master might get to work? A few things need to happen next. First, the judge says both sides need to get together and come up with a list of people who have the credentials to serve as a special master, get that to her by Friday. It's not clear how long any independent arbiter would take to go over all these papers, but the judge said when the DOJ looked at them, it took about three weeks. The investigation still seems to be in early stages. There's no sense that former President Trump or anyone else will be charged with wrongdoing anytime soon, if at all. But some some of the statements prosecutors made in court filings suggest other people close to Trump will be interviewed eventually, and so will the Trump lawyers who told the Justice Department they conducted a diligent search for classified material in June before the FBI found even more secrets at Mar-a-Lago. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thanks for your reporting. My pleasure. In Ukraine, there were renewed problems at the troubled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant today. The plant lost its last remaining connection to Ukraine's electricity grid after intensive shelling, according to the company that runs the plant. That news comes just a few days after the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency left the site. NPR's Jeff Brumfield is here to discuss the latest. Jeff, what happened at the plant? Well, normally this nuclear plant has four different connections to the electricity grid, and they were down to one, and then that one was lost due to shelling earlier this month around the plant. So it turns out there was one more backup option, a smaller line that ran through a nearby thermal power plant, and today we learned that it was also disconnected. Now, the state-run utility that runs the nuclear plant blames Russia for the shelling. The International Atomic Energy Agency said the disconnection came due to a fire, and they expected the line would be reconnected soon. But for now, the plant is uh, not connected to the grid. Losing four of four connections to the electricity grid sounds bad. Why specifically uh, does this matter? <laughs> Well, nuclear plants make a lot of electricity, but they also require electricity from the grid to operate safely. And specifically, these plants need to keep water pumping through their nuclear cores. So that keeps the cores cool and prevents them from melting down. Now, the IAEA says that one of the reactors at the site is actually still supplying power to the cooling systems. But yeah, this is a precarious way to run a nuclear plant. On Friday, the head of the IAEA, Rafael Grossi, returned from a visit. He said that it was clear Zaporizhia's physical integrity had been violated by shelling and other attacks, and he was very worried about it. Any more information on why these lines keep getting hit? Is it deliberate or accidental? Well, obviously, power lines are going to be affected by things like artillery shells. They're very vulnerable. Uh, but on Friday, Grossi said he thought the targeting of these lines was also deliberate. It is clear that those who have these military aims know very well that the way to cripple or to do more damage is to you know, hit where it hurts so the plant becomes very, very problematic. And it does seem like these lines are going down one after another. So the last of the big four main lines was knocked out right after Grossi left. And then this backup line was knocked out today, the same day some more of IAEA's inspectors left the facility. Why would these lines be a target? 
You know, the reactors themselves are really heavily shielded and tough to damage, and there'd be a huge international outcry if a military was seen deliberately shooting at them. But the power lines are soft targets, they're farther away, and Grossi said that, you know, makes them a tempting target for someone who's trying to make things difficult at the plant. Now, why would someone do that? It's really anyone's guess. Russia has held the plant since March, has been keeping military vehicles and personnel near the reactors. Ukraine is mounting an offensive in the south. But there's just plenty of shelling by both Russia and Ukraine in this area at the moment, so there's no way to tell. I'm sure experts are gaming out potential scenarios. What are their concerns about what might happen next? Well, you know, if the site does lose cooling, then there could obviously be a meltdown. And if that happened, it would be in a war zone. We've never seen anything like that. There would be no easy way to get international help to the plant. And if that's not scary enough, Zaporizhia sits in the middle of some of Ukraine's most fertile farmland. So there's this real risk that any any radioactivity released would be potentially economically devastating as well. That's NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thank you. Thank you so much, Harry. Back to the U.S. now. If you are headed home after this long holiday weekend, drive carefully. U.S. roads are more dangerous than they have been in a generation. Traffic fatalities are at a 20-year high despite the fact that cars are safer than they've ever been. Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports. Hundreds of people turned out in Grandview, Missouri last week for the funeral of Charles Crenier, a devoted father of 10. I invite you to stand and sing with us again. Crenier was out for an early morning bike ride when a hit-and-run driver slammed into him from behind. He was pronounced dead at the scene, just 43 years old. A beloved husband, teacher, and coach, says his brother Eric Crenier. He was the best brother ever. And I'll miss you, Charlie. And this kind of thing happens over and over again, every single day, all over the country. Mark Chung with the National Safety Council says car wrecks killed almost 46,000 Americans last year. That's like a regional jet crashing every day. Regional jet carrying 125 people crashing every single day of last year. The 10% jump in deaths last year was the worst increase on record, and the fatality rate is still climbing. And this is a massive reversal. The grim spike in deaths follows a long, persistent decline since the 1970s, driven by huge advances in vehicle safety features, road design, and seatbelt compliance. It's devastating. Kathy Chase, president of Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety, says the pandemic seemed to set it off. Our roadways were turned into racetracks, and excessive speed really went up up through the roof, and uh, more people were driving while impaired. Chase says that motorists messed up on drugs and alcohol or distracted by their cell phones and not wearing seatbelts are driving the sharp rise in traffic deaths. That squares with the careless, aggressive driving that Police Sergeant Corey Carlisle sees here in downtown Kansas City. Carlisle says most deadly crashes used to happen on major highways. Now he says they're common on these city streets. We're stopping people going 120. I mean, that's if they stop. So the new trend is high speeds, not stopping for the police. The police here, like many places, are short-staffed. They're making fewer stops, and for safety's sake, they won't get into a high-speed chase just for a traffic violation. But Carlos says Kansas City cops are making close to triple the number of impaired driving arrests that they were before the pandemic. And though newer cars are safer for passengers, 
they're often bigger, faster, and heavier than they used to be, making them more lethal for everyone else. And if you're driving a 3,000-pound vehicle at 50 to 100 miles an hour, you're weaponizing that car, and you're the one pulling the trigger. It's the same thing. And this is primarily an American problem. Mark Chung at the National Safety Council says no other developed countries are seeing a surge in traffic fatalities. But Chung says the U.S. may be on the verge of turning things around. Just last week, a new federal regulation kicked in requiring all new cars to have automatic braking systems that fire when the car is about to hit something. The technology is to assist the driver in recognizing that obstacle. And if you're not fast enough to apply the brakes, it will do that for you. That's going to save lives. In fact, a system like that could have spared Charles Crenier, the Kansas City area father of 10, killed when he was hit from behind by an inattentive driver. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, before autumn inches much closer, we take a look back at the hottest songs of the summer. U.S. markets were closed for this Labor Day holiday. The city of Boston is seeking nominations for a new program to support so-called legacy businesses. WBUR's John Bender reports companies that have operated in the same location for at least 10 years qualify. The initiative is aimed at keeping culturally significant shops, restaurants, and other companies in Boston neighborhoods. The city's small business director, Alicia Porcena, says the program will promote tourism and protect businesses from encroaching development. So how are we supporting businesses so they're not displaced, especially ones that have been in the community for years? And I think this program wants to highlight these businesses, and we really believe that this program can help turn our neighborhoods into destinations. 25 selected businesses will receive free legal consulting and access to a $1 million fund for help with things like rent and operations costs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Fine Arts. View magnetic portraits of Barack and Michelle Obama at the MFA. Reserve tickets at mfa.org Obama. Supported by Bank of America and Back Bay Life Science Advisors, integrated strategy consulting and investment banking for biopharma, medtech, and their investors. BBLSA.com. I've been a public radio listener for over 40 years. My name is Nancy, and I donated my 2001 Volvo station wagon to public radio. It was really hard to say goodbye. I love Morning Edition and All Things Considered, and it was kind of a no-brainer to give the car to public radio. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. In St. Petersburg, it's the top of the seventh for the Sox and Tampa Bay Rays. The score right now is 3-2 Boston. More rain tonight, a little bit cooler than it is right now. Then tomorrow, more clouds, more showers. Should make it to the mid-60s tomorrow. Could hit 70 on Wednesday as the sun breaks through the remaining clouds for the day. Holding steady at 66 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Well, it's Labor Day. It's the last day of summer in many people's eyes, including mine. And back when this season started, we asked NPR's Stephen Thompson to predict which songs would be everywhere this summer. Well, some of those predictions probably sound pretty familiar by now. There's Kate Bush. Running Up That Hill, the 1980s song revived by the TV show Stranger Things. Lizzo's About Damn Time. Turn up the music, let's that one is pretty self-explanatory. Okay. And of course there is Beyonce. You won't break my She had a whole album drop this summer. Stephen Thompson is back now to chat about just how right his predictions were. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Juana. All right, we are journalists. We are in the business of facts. (laughs) So if you can fact check yourself, what happened in music this summer? Well, I think I mostly got it pretty right. I mean, I certainly picked three songs that were massive hits in the summer of 2022, but it's important to note that Song of the Summer is a marathon, not a sprint. These things didn't happen overnight. Uh, They had weeks or even months, or in the case of Kate Bush, years of rollout before they kind of took off and became kind of defining songs of this summer. So I got them right, but it was a pretty, it was a pretty easy lift. Okay, so I got to ask you here, was there a clear winner? Who came out on top to you? Well, I think, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder, and there are different metrics at work here. We could talk about what was streamed the most on Spotify. We could talk about what topped the Billboard charts. We could talk in sort of a more nebulous way about what kind of dominated the cultural conversation. And I don't think you can necessarily slot the same song into all those spots. The most streamed song on Spotify in the summer of 2022 was Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush from 1985. Thus showing that a song can have the longest imaginable tale and still have enormous cultural resonance years and years, decades later. Um, The most streamed song globally was As It Was by Harry Styles. That's kind of the song that we talked about a little bit earlier this summer, but I think I certainly underestimated the staying power of that song. That song is still number one on the Billboard charts. So any other artists that come to mind who also had strong showings this summer that maybe surprised you? Well, I I wasn't necessarily expecting Jack Harlow's song, First Class, to to kind of climb as high on the charts as it did and stick around as long as it did. That song had an enormous amount of staying power, in part due to radio airplay. They say you a superstar now, damn, I guess I am. You might be the man, well, that's unless I am. Okay, I'll confess I am. So Jack Harlow is certainly an example of somebody who really broke through in 2022 and had a very, very big summer. I think it's definitely worth mentioning Bad Bunny. 
Bad Bunny put out an album called Un Verano Sinti back in May, and its songs were just all over the streaming charts all summer long. If the metric you're using is streaming, he was enormous. If the metric you're using is the number of times I heard it playing out of car windows, <laughs> it also qualifies. <laughs> He had a massive, massive, massive summer. Okay, so when we talk about some of the names we started out with, Beyonce, she's been around for nearly 25 years. Kate Bush's song, Running Up That Hill, came out before I was born. But were there any (laughs) newcomers that sort of came out of nowhere this summer? I don't think this summer was necessarily a big one for completely left field artists who came entirely out of nowhere. I think you're starting to see some trickle up though. I think this fall, you're gonna hear a lot more of Blackpink. Uh, Blackpink is a a, a K-pop girl group. They just played the VMAs. They've got a song called Pink Venom that's kind of climbing the charts. We didn't necessarily have that one big K-pop smash hit that defined the summer the way we have from BTS in the last couple years. And I think Blackpink, a band that a lot of people have been talking about as a next big thing for the last few years, they seem to finally be crossing over to the U.S. in ways that began this summer. When I think back about our conversation at the start of the summer, we also talked about how house music was reemerging, both in Beyonce's songs and Drake's new album. Were there any other big artists that we saw dabbling in house, or was that kind of a one or two off? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I think that particular trend in pop music is still kind of revealing itself. You know, the saying, you know, two's a coincidence, three's a trend, or whatever. I mean, you had Beyonce and Drake really doing that. I can't help it, I'm so into you. And certainly other artists have have broken through in dance music, but I'm not sure that's necessarily taken over the sound of mainstream pop music the way it seemed like maybe it might for a minute there. Now, I know summer is sadly coming to an end, but we are headed into what I think is the best season of the year, fall. And I don't know if there's like a song of the fall, but Stephen, what are you excited about over the next couple of months? What kind of artists are going to be bringing you into autumn? I mentioned Blackpink. That feels like it's about to become a really, really, really massive thing in terms of topping charts. There's a new album from Carly Rae Jepsen coming out in October. She is an enormously reliable pop hit maker. There's a new Taylor Swift coming out in October. She is certainly likely to dominate the cultural conversation really between now and then as she as she so often does. Uh, we're gonna see more of these kind of BTS uh, solo projects rolling out, that any of which have the potential to kind of cross over in a big way. Uh, but one thing that's worth keeping in mind is songs really aren't just songs of the summer. Uh, pop singles have more staying power than just about any piece of pop culture right now. Movies stay in theater for just a few weeks. Even Top Gun Maverick only stayed in theaters for a few months, right? But sometimes these pop songs will last and stay on the charts for months and months and months or even years. I mean, Glass Animals had the song of the summer with heat waves a while back. Sometimes all I think about is you Late nights in the middle of June 
And that thing still hasn't gone away. So uh, some of the songs of the fall are going to be the same as the songs of, of this summer because songs take so long to kind of slip out of the public's imagination. All right, Stephen Thompson from NPR Music, thanks for helping us fill out our playlist this year. Thank you, Anna. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Keep an eye out for some ponding on the roads this evening. It's especially slowing down traffic around Providence. Rain continues tonight, dipping to 60. Tomorrow, some drenching rains again. Highs only in the 60s. And then for Wednesday, sunshine beats back the clouds, topping out at about 70 degrees. A flood watch remains in effect in the area through tomorrow afternoon at 5 o'clock. Red Sox are holding on to a 3-2 lead in the bottom of the 7th in St. Petersburg. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Arts Emerson's Drum Folk. They took away the drums, but they could not stop the beat. October 5th through 16th at the Cutler Majestic Theater, artsemerson.org.